and welcome to the latest installment of the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and we're now at number 166, and it's almost the end of January. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I had a bit of a surprise this week when one of my friends sent me a video he'd taken many years ago of me on the radio. It's only about 30 seconds long, and it's me chatting and complaining about my impending 30th birthday. I now realise 30 is not old. I also wonder where my hair went. But it was very cool to see the clip, and no, I'm not so old it was in black and white. And I can still remember what most of the buttons did. I miss those days. I remember while I was there I was offered a pretty good drive-time radio slot in the greater New York area, but I kind of lost interest when they told me all I'd be doing is reading what was written for me as opposed to ad-libbing. I realised even then that I would only have lasted about ten minutes before making some joke or comment, and I'd be out on my ear. It was a bad week when it comes to people passing away as meatloaf left us. I can't say I was ever a fan, but that was my wife's first ever gig. And we also lost the spiritual leader Thich Nhat Hanh, who wrote my favourite book, Pieces Every Step. On the book front, I've been reading a few less cerebral books lately, mostly about baseball. When I have time, that is. It's pretty rare I get much time to myself, and I'm sure many of you listening are in exactly the same situation. Just not enough hours in the day to get everything done. At least that's my excuse. I'm often doing multitasking when it comes to doing nothing, so I'm watching sport while listening to music and skimming through books or magazines or a website, which isn't really very relaxing at all, really. There's been a bit of a COVID outbreak at my son's school, and when there are less than 30 in the whole school, it makes a big impact when there are a few of them off. The kids have all been asked to take a daily COVID test, which is going down really well at home. It's going down about as well as broccoli or trying new food. I'm not really sure when I went from a pretty limited taste palette to liking all kinds of foods, so I guess there's still time. I'm still enjoying doing lots of cooking, although I do think that some of the recipes I use are guilty of false advertising when it comes to the photos. I think I'm a pretty good cook, but nothing I ever make comes close to the photos. So I should tell you who we have conversations with this week. We chatted with Saumya Naya, Global Consumer Research and Insights Director at Kerry, Martijn Goodhart, co-founder of Open Dairy, and Gary Hirschberg, Stonyfield co-founder and former CEO on the new Northeast Organic Family Farm Partnership. Of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. And that means it's time for our trip down memory lane, although it's short-term memory, because it's the news we had on the website over the past week. We had some upgrades done on our content system on Friday and Monday, so that had a bit of an effect, but it was still a busy week for news, which was great. We had an article on where the cheapest ice cream is in the UK, and it's not where I am. We had a look at acquisitions in 2021, and the deadline is looming for the 2022 World Championship Cheese Contest in the US. We had a special newsletter on developments in plant-based for Veganuary. A new partnership to enhance Canada's plant-based cheese market was announced. And Fonterra raised its forecast Farmgate milk price range. In the US, Senator King from Maine has backed legislation on dairy pricing for farmers. Hochdorf in Switzerland has a new CEO. 
And there are going to be job losses at Unilever worldwide as the company looks to reorganize its business structure. You can read all of these and quite a lot more at dairyreporter.com. And so it's time for our first interview. Last year we ran an article about 89 organic family farms across Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont and eastern New York, receiving the news that Horizon was terminating their purchase contracts, effective in early 2023. Maple Hill Creamery also announced the cancellation of contracts for 46 farms, and so in response Gary Hirschberg, Stonyfield co-founder and former CEO, has formed the Northeast Organic Family Farm Partnership, which intends to address the crisis of disappearing family farms. And we will hear from Gary about what actions are being taken. Well, I guess the obvious first question then is if you could give me a bit of background on the Northeast Organic Family Farm Partnership. You bet, Jim. So as many people in this region know of of, uh, northern New England and eastern New York, last the summer, 89 organic family farms were told that their contracts would not be renewed at the end of 2022. That has since been extended by a couple of months. And then shortly thereafter, another 46 found out they were losing their contracts. So all told, that's 135 family farms who are going to be out of business at the end of this year without some alternate customers. And of course, uh, it's a challenging situation because A, we've already got a long list of farmers looking to convert, conventional farmers looking to convert to organic. Organic's been a very successful lifeline for many of our farms in the region. But also in the case of the Horizon, the first uh, bunch of farmers, the 89, Horizon is just replacing that milk with milk from larger farms in there, uh, closer to Buffalo, New York. So a group of us said, look, this is a tragedy on so many levels. These are wonderful farmers, many of whom have been farming for generations. It's obviously not just farms, it's families, it's people's lives. But from an economic point of view, it's $70 million of lost revenue to areas that, as you know, are rural and can least afford that kind of hit. So the coalition that we formed, the partnership, is a group of everyone from farmers to processors to government officials, all of whom have come together activists in the area to say, look, we've got to do something. There are multiple task forces working on all kinds of solutions, capital spending, investment, federal government intervention, and so on. But as a business guy, who's, you know, because of my business background at Stonyfield over three decades, I, I know that the only real solution for these 135 farms and really all of the region's family farms, especially the organic family farms, is we've just simply got to increase demand in the market. Some 20,000 people signed a petition to Horizon Denon in the fall asking that they recant their decision. That wasn't going to happen. But that's what gave me the idea that, well, those same 20,000, if they just pledged to buy one organic dairy item a week, and we've identified 35 different brands in the market who support these farmers, then uh, we could solve this problem. You know, we did a calculation in that if one quarter of New England residents bought just one organic item a week, the problem for these 135 farms would be solved. So our intent very simply is engage consumers across the region to sign a pledge, take those pledges to all of the areas, retailers, food service, cafeterias, the 
business and industry and university cafeterias, restaurants, anybody who sells dairy and say, look, you've got a market here. You've got people wanting to support these farms. Let's all be partners. Let's all both save these farms and create a different environment. So these farmers are never put in this position again. The group that you've put together is there's quite a lot of arms to the group in terms of, you know, the different restaurants and the suppliers, producers. How did you manage to bring all of that together? It seems like quite the job. <laughs> well, this has been months at work. And to be very clear, at the moment, it's more the supply side who's come together. We have, again, farmers, the various government departments of ag who are all in. And we don't yet have major sign-ons from the customer side, but that just goes to our theory of change here, which is if we can get 10, 20, 30,000 consumers to say this is important, you know, if, I, if I've learned nothing else in my 35 years in business, it's that consumers rule. When consumers stand up and say, we want to support these farms, we want these products on our shelves, purveyors have a way of getting them. We have initiated conversations with major retailers, restaurants, and so forth. Many are excited and interested. We have a simple little logo, uh, our Northeast Organic Family Farm Partnership logo that they can proudly display. It's literally a licensing agreement. All they have to do is commit that they'll purchase products from one of the or more of the 35 brands. And then we will go to town uh, publicizing, thanking, honoring them. You know, a couple of big retailers could change the game here. You've got private label, own label milk, you know, a number of big retailers here that comes from out of the region. If that came from in the region, problem solved. If a couple of big restaurant chains commit, that can solve a big piece of it. It's not going to, you know, 135 farms, a lot of milk, and it's not going to get solved by any one entity. But our theory here is pull the whole region together and essentially literally partner with these farms. The benefits are obvious for the farms because if this takes off, then it ensures their survival. But what are the benefits for everybody else in that chain? If you think about it for a second, of course, COVID has been a very difficult time in the grocery sector. Uh, you've had lower store traffic and supply chain difficulties that you certainly know all about. And growth in that sector is not even something people have been talking about for the last two years. They've been really talking about survival, right? Just keeping the doors open. And that's true even more so for restaurants because people haven't been wanting to gather with COVID. So what we're offering all these purveyors is an opportunity to essentially a, a way of burnishing their brand. It's a way of them saying to their shoppers, to their patrons, hey, you know what? We live here too. We don't want to see these farms go under. We're going to proudly display this logo. Uh, you can count on us as a strong local supporter and a local champion. And there have been many, so many tragedies with COVID, but one of the silver linings, and you know, my wife calls me a pathological optimist, so I realize I'm maybe stretching it, but one has been that local has done a lot better in COVID. People have been more aware of, because they're not traveling and interested in supporting their local restaurants. It might be through takeout, not dining in, and their local retailers. This is a way of helping all local purveyors really positively and publicly declare that they're there to keep these suppliers alive. And I might add on the reciprocal side, it's also a chance for consumers to make this declaration that we're happy to support you if you're a brand in the area, but you've got to keep your money in local circulation. It's not enough to come here and get our sales, but not support our suppliers. And I do think that there's been, even before COVID, a very strong 
desire for consumers to purchase more locally. One little stat that I think you would know, but your listeners might not, is that an American Farmland Trust that did a study on this. Local family farms purchase about 98% of their supply in their local markets. And a dollar of farm income in a region like ours gets recycled 1.9 times. So when I tell you that it's $70 million of farm income, if you do the math, it actually winds up being close to $135 million of net economic impact. So again, this is a way for retailers, restaurateurs, convenience stores, you name it, cafeterias to say, hey, we're going to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And you know, the last thing I want to say in that vein is these days are so overwhelming for us all. COVID, climate, the dysfunctional politics in Washington. Most of us feel kind of overwhelmed by these problems we can't solve. This is a problem we can all solve. (laughs) This is one of those things where when you sign the pledge, you can feel really good as a family member, as a local citizen, that you're doing something that really makes a difference because taken to scale, as I mentioned, if enough consumers do this, these farms are not going to go under. This is a literally a direct relationship between the pledge and keeping these farms alive. So something everybody can feel good about, retailers, consumers, all of us. And I assume it's not static that groups and restaurants and schools, they can all continue to sign up to this? Absolutely. In fact, we're just literally getting started. Our focus in January is signing on consumers, but we've already, as I mentioned, begun discussions with uh, all kinds of institutions. If you look down our list of advisory board members, one you see there is a guy named Albert Strauss from Strauss Dairy in Northern California. We have Albert helping us uh, because he has been very successful in getting organic milk into local school districts. And we want to understand how he did that. There's a lot of milk purchased in this market. And we're just saying, let's purchase a bit more of it locally and, and organic. So We hope this list will be more than dynamic. We hope it's going to be growing very rapidly over the next year, two, three more, you know, even more. You know, you're asking really great questions. We also hope this could be a model for how consumers and retailers and institutions in other markets and in other commodities could also help to boost uh, the local supply chain and act together to build a more sustainable and viable, long-term, durable market for farms. So yeah, this thing, we hope, is going to grow for years. What's the reaction been like so far from local people in the region? Are they all signing Uh, up to it? Yeah, really humbling. The word's just getting out. We're getting sign-ons every minute, which is very nice. You know, it's been particularly heart-rending for me to hear from a lot of the farmers. One little challenge here is 135 farms, most of them are subject to non-disclosures, they're not allowed to actually talk because they're, they're still under contract. And uh, I have heard from a bunch of them with just simple thank yous. You have to understand their Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's this year were probably the worst in their lives because they're sitting there looking at a cliff at the end of the year. So just hearing a note of, you know, whether this works as well as we hope or not, it's just nice to know that it's appreciated and that they know that we're trying to make a difference. I hope we're successful. I hope we can get uh, every last one of these farms a new contract before the end of the year. And it's a a big undertaking that you're doing. Who's going to coordinate it and monitor it? Well, yeah, this is a sound like my wife. Uh, You know, we're all busy people. I wasn't exactly looking around for a full-time unpaid job (laughs) uh, when this came. 
it just has to be done. So we do have a full-time paid coordinator who's leading it. And then we have obviously a lot of people being very generous with their time. Again, I want to underscore with gratitude, we have the State Departments of Agriculture in Maine and Vermont and New York engaged. The governors and the Congress people in those states are engaged. So people want to save these farms. It's like uh, you always say, you know, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person. And that's just what we've done. We've got a lot of busy people adding this to their plate. Now it's to the Netherlands to chat about Open Dairy, a managed marketplace for the dairy trading industry. To explain what it is, how it works, and the benefit for dairy companies is one of Open Dairy's co-founders, Martijn Goodhart. I guess the first and most obvious question is if you could give me some background on the company itself. Yeah, sure. When you go back to the early beginning, which is a bit strange to say because it's only two years ago, but Henk and myself, two of the founders, we left Hoogwacht after 10 and 12 years in dairy trading for a big company. We left that company and we wanted to start something for ourselves, uh, which we did. It was uh, literally two weeks before COVID hit the Netherlands. So that was in terms of timing was a bit strange. And we soon found out that once you start trading and connecting supply and demand, there are quite some things you need to arrange and you need to set up. And that was basically the first trigger for us to think, why is this all so difficult? You know, everyone's doing the same, but if you start again, you have to go through the whole learning curve. So how can we make this whole trade more efficient? That's how the idea of Open Dairy started. Also really inspired by the boom in e-commerce during the first lockdown in B2C, obviously. And we figured, well, if this works so well for B2C, all the business people are consumers as well. So they get used to a new standard and they probably will start looking for that in their professional life as well. And that's how we came up with the idea of a marketplace, which is not new. We didn't invent the marketplace, but we figured that there should be some specific services on there to make sure that it has value for the buyer and the seller. And that's how we started. We started with a pitch deck. Got some market feedback and at some point the feedback was good and we, we decided to go for it and start building. Uh, and that's how Open Dairy basically was born. How does it actually work? Well, it all starts with buyers and sellers. So, you know, in the dairy world, there are a lot of producers of commodities. Hardly any of them produce commodities as core business. It's typically a way to get rid of the leftover milk, the surplus milk. And these products need to be sold to customers around the world, Middle East, Asia, North Africa, South America sometimes. So really, on one side, there's a fragmented landscape of sellers. On the other end, there's an even more fragmented landscape of buyers. And connecting these two together, that's the main purpose of our platform. And we don't just say, you are a buyer, you are a seller, so you can trade with each other. Our software can compare their specifications. So basically, the buyer and the seller both upload their specifications. And based on that, we already see, is it a match? Is it a product that they can trade together? So that's the first step. But that doesn't get you to a trade because the buyer is used to having the product uh, supplied to their doorstep, delivered to their doorstep. And they like to enjoy uh, extended payment terms. Whereas the seller doesn't want to be bothered with logistics and wants quick payment. So there are two gaps that we needed to bridge somehow. Then there were two options. We could set it up ourselves or we could have external partners do it. And we believe very much in the latter because 
we believe that everyone in our ecosystem, as we call it, should focus on their core business. So if you look at the flow, the seller offers some product at some price, at some volume. The buyer sees that. The buyer gets options to choose from in terms of logistics and financial services. And based on that, a trade has been concluded. And the buyer enjoys the service that they're used to. And the seller is really unburdened in terms of the execution of the order. And how does it deal with things like transportation, customs, all of those things? Customs are typically not an issue because it's delivered into the port. That's, that's what the market is used to. We're actually also looking into extending that supply chain into the, the countries of destination. There are some forwarders who would be happy to look at that. So in terms of customs, it's not an issue at the moment, but it might be something that can be solved in the future. Yeah, transportation is just offered by forwarders connected to our platform. They basically see a request. This is where it should be loaded. This is where it should be unloaded. This is how many tons we can load in a container or a truck. And based on that, they can provide a price that the buyer can book. And it's easy for both sellers and buyers to utilize? Yeah, it's just one mouse click to confirm that booking and that service. And it's just a computer-based, so they just download it, or is it a website? It's an online portal. It's a website, basically. So you can just access it through your browser or your mobile phone and conclude those uh, trades. So there's no software that needs to be installed on local computers or something like that. It's all web-based. Okay. And you mentioned earlier about not reinventing and not being the only thing. How does it fit in with the other platforms? I'm thinking of things like GDT. How does it fit in with what else is already out there? Yeah, that's a good and fair question. I think first and foremost, what we think is our really our USP is that we are independent. So we're not aligned or liaised to any producer, any buyer. We're just a tech startup producing software and leveraging our network in the dairy market. But there's no conflict of interest with any of the dairy players. I think that's already something that makes us unique compared to the other platforms because they're either linked to a trader or a producer, directly or indirectly. And the other thing is that this full service proposition, we really believe that that is what it will, that is what the market needs. Because going back to a consumer, you know, as a consumer, you, well, at least myself, I'm happy to order something online, but not if the level of service is lower than what I'm used to in my traditional way of buying. And that's what has been the case until now, because on these other platforms, you can buy something and then you still have to find out how to get it transported, who is going to finance you. You know, these services are not embedded yet. And offering the full service uh, solution, we think will really distinguish ourselves from the other platforms out there because it's just more complete. For both sellers and buyers, what would the benefits be? You kind of mentioned some of them already, but what are the benefits for companies using it? If you look from a seller perspective, it really depends on what you compare it with. So as a seller, you could either compare it with selling it yourself directly to your customers. And then it's very much an efficiency value proposition because you can reach a lot of buyers with just sending out one offer. You don't have to take care of the logistics. You don't have to finance these buyers. So it's really about unburdening and making these companies efficient. If you're a seller and you're used to selling to a trader, then the big advantage is, of course, transparency in the markups. So you see exactly what the costs are to get it from you to the buyer, whereas through a trader, that's, of course, uh, intransparent. But also that you actually get to know your buyer. You know who you're dealing with. Uh, you know where your product is going. So 
really the transparency of just knowing who you're selling to. That's a big one for the seller. If you look from a buyer's perspective, I think it makes it much easier for buyers to find new suppliers, eligible suppliers, because that's really hard for especially overseas buyers to oversee the landscape of all the, the sellers out there. Yeah, And we just give a comprehensive overview of all the offers out there. And we even help the buyers advising whether they can use this product, yes or no. So for buyers, it's also really an efficiency and um, a clearer overview of what's out there in the market. And it's already been in use in terms of some trials that you've done on it. How did those go? Yeah, correct. What we have built already this summer is basically an auction module. The services of logistics and finance were not yet included. So it's what we call in tech a minimum viable product. First release to test how it all works. And that's an auction on which producers can offer products with a minimum price and invite buyers. It's the auction module, as we call it. And what we saw is that the minimum price that the seller was willing to accept, well, was typically exceeded, well, between 5 and 15%. And more interestingly, every time we had a different winner. So that really strengthens our case that, you know, at some point you can't keep contact with all the buyers of your product and make sure that you sell to the right one every time. And that's what this platform basically takes care of for you. And so now that you're moving into using this commercially, how will you get companies to use it? We chose to keep the threshold very low, or there's no threshold at all other than investing some time and giving us some information so we can set up the users properly. But there's no subscription fee. You only pay when a trade has been concluded. Of course, with it being computer-based, I guess you'll constantly be having to update it, but that also is good in so far as you can tweak it according to what customers need. You hit the needle on the head there. The phase that we're going into right now, until now it was developing, testing, making sure that the platform works like we want it to work and we think it should work. And now it's very much about getting buyer and seller feedback and getting their views on how it works and how it should work and implementing that quickly. So we postponed our roadmap for new features a bit, a few months, so we can now really focus on the on the user feedback because in the end, that's the most important. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about the platform or how people can get in touch? Or We're, we're an early stage company, but we have quite big plans and dreams, so to say. So... We really want to make things easier than they are now, also in terms of logistics, you know, visibility, uh, knowing the reliability rate of a shipper, knowing the CO2 emissions that you are creating with your transaction and making it easy to offset that. So we're really also looking at expanding our services, not only based on the core product of the marketplace, but also everything that's connected with it. And that's obviously something you start doing when you have some traction and uh, it's, it's running well. But it's not just about uh, connecting supply and demand. We really want to make all the aspects of, of the trade easier and more transparent. When you mention that, it makes me think that the more trades that you do and the more companies that you have, the more data that you'll have in order to be able to make things more efficient and help with carbon footprints, that kind of thing. That's it. Yeah. Well, that data could help for many things, you know, among which uh, price discovery. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the website address? www.opendairy.com The next interview is slightly longer than usual, but it's all about trends for 2022. 
even though we're a twelfth of the way through it already. Kerry has published its global taste charts for 2022, and there are quite a lot of them for different markets around the world. To tell us about the charts and what those 2022 trends are, we chatted with Saumya Naya, Global Consumer Research and Insights Director at Kerry in the US. It's the second year now that we've had to experience COVID, and we thought, this time last year that we'd be we'd be done with this but here we are again how has covid affected things and how have consumer preferences changed over that time do you think yeah jim i i think we are definitely getting into the third year of covid and consumers kind of know that as well across the you know at least in the in the european and the north america markets people have started to step out again I know, as you said, about 2021, same time last year, people were just hoping for the vaccines to settle everything down. But the reality of it is consumers have embraced this new way of life. Typically, they say there's about 65 days or two months, typically, that a new behavior is formed. Um, And it takes that much longer. So if you want to start a new workout regime, make sure that you stick to it about 65 days. And we have had multiple 65 days over the last two and a half years now, which means that consumers have new behaviors set, new patterns set. They have reprioritized quite a bit of efforts, which is long term. And now that we're entering actually the third year, right, 2020 was short, 2021 was as well. We're entering now a new year where people are ready to face adventures. They know that these challenges are already something they have to embrace. Their work-life balance, their favorite restaurants or their favorite foods that they would have stepped out, their social events that they would have stepped out for. They need to find new adventures within the confines of safety and something that is familiar as well. So I'd say, honestly, this time, people are a lot more brave. They want to travel through their taste buds a lot more than last year. We had trends specifically last year that spoke about familiarity, safety, so that people felt that they had this cocoon around them, right? Because there was a lot of uncertainties out in the marketplace and they wanted to settle back to their safe, familiar, you know, habitual flavors, habitual activities and social kind of engagements. We now see a consumer who's a lot more braver and now wanting to step out. We see a lot more interest in wanting to try adventurous new flavors. What's the new cuisine trend in the marketplace that they want to be involved in? What's a new menu item? Though there is this aspect of familiarity with a twist, which we call conventional surprises. So you're really looking at consumers wanting something that they know of, familiar with, So take, for instance, the pumpkin spice latte, right, that happens in North America and quite a few other regions as well. People expect that around the winter seasons, PSL is going to make an appearance. But this year around, they wanted something else. They wanted a twist. They surely wanted their, you know, comfort hazelnut and pumpkin spice lattes but they wanted a twist they wanted something that was unconventional for the season so we saw the both of you know apple butters and we saw sugar cookie making its way across flavors we see that quite a bit this year than we would have last year again spices have come back a lot of higher levels of heat 
higher levels of chilies and spices are making their way across sweet and savory and a lot of other kind of product categories so that's definitely new indicating a whole new consumer wanting to you know be adventurous in their taste buds are there any other trends that are regional because i know that um i got this press release from several different places and there were different trends in each one because of the different regions Absolutely. Look, regionally, um, we took, as you see, our taste charts are all regional, right? So that we could get a more in-depth view of those cultures and those changes. I'd say there are broad stroke similarities across regions, particularly when you're thinking about functionality and ingredients that impart a sense of health and added function to the consumer beyond taste. So there is that aspect that is a common thread across the regions. Where it starts to become a lot more different is the timeline at which they are growing. So for instance, in North America, you would have seen turmeric grow, gosh, in the last five years, right? Our, our taste charts have been capturing turmeric as an ingredient, as a flavoring, as a color enhancer on products about five years ago. But you see that now changing and metamorphosing into a whole new being. For instance, in Apmia, they want to talk about turmeric leaf, where there is emphasis on it as a ingredient and wanting to use root to tip in Apmia, right, in the Asia, Pacific, Middle East, Africa regions. In Europe, for instance, it is predominantly seen as a functional ingredient. So you're looking at turmeric, but you're looking at its actives like curcumin. So I'd say there are levels and intensities in which it appears across the regions, absolutely. Furthermore, when you're really looking at sustainability, there are different stages of it too. So we have a trend that calls out provenance with a conscience. And we did a research in 2021 globally across 18 plus countries on the topic of sustainability. And what we discovered is that 49% of consumers are actively thinking about sustainability. It's no longer just a quarter of consumers across the globe are prioritizing sustainability in their food and beverage purchases. We identified that there is 49% of them, that is almost one in two consumers, is thinking about sustainability on various degrees. So they could be people who are looking for ingredients with a specific provenance and a conscience in, in North America versus in Europe, they are thinking about ethical sourcing and ensuring that products or ingredients sourced from a region also gives back to the community. So there's a different layer of emphasis on sustainable planet people in Europe as well. Versus if you look at Latin America, we're talking about clearly provenance, right? Off-origin flavors, off-origin ingredients. And I think that calls out not just the focus of different regions playing out a specific trend differently, but also, again, like those levels that we, we call out. And of course, when you think about flavors and cultural, sociocultural kind of flavors that they prefer, cuisines that they have been traditionally been using, it's quite different too. This year, for instance, if I add, we included the cuisine charts in North America and in Europe. You're talking to a researcher, right? So we are always curious in coming up with new methodologies that are grounded in science, but speaks to what's happening in the marketplace. So we included cuisine charts this year. And if you look at the cuisine charts in Europe, versus in North America, 
you will start to realize that trends like Korean food or Filipino food are very strong in North America. But in Europe, you'll realize it is Korean forward. Filipino food hasn't yet made its way. But I, I mean, I, I'd expect it to in the next round of the taste charts, or the next couple of rounds of the taste charts. So we see those changes there versus, you know, when you think about Ethiopian cuisine, Mediterranean, Egyptian cuisine, that is a emerging up and coming, you know, trend here in North America. You will see that across the board, but it is slowly starting up in Europe as well. So you will see those kind of different degrees and different ways that a culture is accepting of new trends as well. We mentioned the pandemic a little bit earlier. Are people more aware now and more interested in things like immunity and health? My gosh, absolutely. So it is alarming at the beginning. You could see the spike, right? So if you'd see the graph of how many product launches have happened in the marketplace and how many consumers are actually purchasing it on point of sale data, on sales data, you'd see there is a huge spike that happened end of 2020. And it's been rising ever since. Immunity, digestive, probiotics, prebiotics, right? Those types of products, they have not flattened out yet. There is huge demand in the consumer space. There is huge demand on not just the active functional benefits, but also the emotional, mental well-being. As consumers start to understand the link between brain health and gut health. So the fact that if you want immunity, you can't just think about the physical elements of health boosting ingredients, but you also need to think about how do you keep your emotional, mental well-being in check. So we see a lot of linkages that even consumers are making now. So you'd see this trifecta, if you may, on a very basic sense is immunity, digestive but and emotional well-being. So we see that really growing quite a bit. Specifically, there are ingredients like maca in Europe. Maca also is called out in the Asia-Pacific region versus you will see moringa, for instance, which is good on, you know, making sure that you have mental wellness and calming and relaxing benefits. You also have ashwagandha, which is called out in Europe. Um, we called out ashwagandha in the North America charts two years ago. And it's made its way in Europe as well. So that root that is supposed to be calming and good on kind of overall mental wellness is growing in Europe now and trending as an ingredient. So we see those ingredients now making its way, not just as a claim on a package that says good for immunity or immune health or just look supplements as a, is a key category where people are going to. So they are trying to bolster their immune health with supplements and you know medication and like those kind of traditional conventional routes but there is also products like salty snacks and popcorns and puffs and candy and chocolate that is calling out these immunity and digestive health benefits so we see those ingredients rising as a as a result like carob for instance has this nutty kind of flavor it's a great natural sweetener alternative so it's been used for that as well so we see carob rising as a result we also see you know a lot of ingredients like chicory root for instance that or green coffee uh, extract that helps with stamina and energy and those aspects going not just in your traditional teas and beverages but also across sweet and indulgent foods that you sometimes sit down and you're you just want your 
salted caramel or your, you know, hyper triple brownie chocolate cake. But now consumers are also accepting of, well, what's the added benefit in it? Does it have extra collagen or does it have ingredients that help me get secondary tertiary benefits out of it beyond just indulgence, right? So there is those aspects that are changing this year as a result of look, the cause and effect and the causality of it is quite unclear and quite difficult for any, any person or an economist to pin down. But there certainly has been a COVID lockdown quarantine effect on people's behaviors. And we see all of those, all of these trends rising as a result of that. too. Do you think that sustainability is on the back burner now or do you think it's just as important as it was? Oh, I think it is more important than before because if you think about the timeline of sustainability too, it was always on a consumer mindset. They revert to greenhouse gases, they revert to atmospheric sustainability, or they used to think about sustainable packaging, giving back to the community, so corporate social responsibility activities and such. That was a pre-pandemic consumer. But now because of the pandemic, and we did this research in 2021 squarely for this reason, we wanted to release this research and go into the field in 2020. And I realized, well, you know, the pandemic has impacted and now behaviors are significantly going to shift. So we actually held off of our deep dive in consumer information in 2020 and pushed it out to 2021. And in that year, we discovered that sustainability is a lot more important than it was before. For instance, we had 10 different parameters for sustainability, right? Right from packaging, of course, to animal welfare, community aid. We also had a mix of food ingredients, sourcing. We also had atmosphere, environment, all of those different factors in this mix and realized that there are consumers who are increasing their focus on sustainability because they're asking the question of, I'm buying this product and what's the benefit to me and to the planet? So it's a very we, not me mentality, right? So it's the organization that we are in. And all the more public health and safety has brought it to light that people are living in a society. And it's really hard, even if you are constrained in a house, you have so many touch points with people that now people are more conscious that it is a community we are living in, even if you are constrained and quarantined in the house. And that has increased people's focus on sustainability, not just on a packaging, government, you know, CSR activities, government policies and such, but also newer to the house to say purchases that I make beyond the plastic bottle and the recyclable water bottle uh, effect. What else am I doing personally that affects the sustainability of the country community that I live in? So for instance, provenance of the conscience has risen because of that. We did not see the sustainability trend as embedded in consumers' food and beverage choices or flavor choices. We see it now, and that's an effect of what happened last year as consumers focus on aspects like off-origin flavors, ingredients that are sourced from, say, vanilla is sourced from a certain region, or cardamom is sourced from a, a specific part of South Southern India. Consumers want to know that we need to give back to that community as well. So it's not as much about authentic sourcing of the flavor, but also about making sure that we give back to that community and make sure that biodiversity, all of those kind of environmental factors are in place and we're keeping the planet in balance. So there is that aspect that is stronger than ever. I think it has been a great catalyst 
over the past couple of years as consumers focus has been on sustainability that they're making more conscious choices in the marketplace now do you think that people are getting more adventurous in the way that they're approaching their food oh definitely i'll tell you two pieces that were really key ahas for me in our taste charts this year was certainly the level of botanicals in the food choices and in the taste charts have grown so much so that we've had about 15% you know upwards of the number of flavors that are botanicals and herbal on our taste charts over the past couple of years alone we go back about 10 years plus right to the taste charts so i can actually look back and see how it's been changing and we know that there have been more inclusions because consumers want these flavors right so the two key ahas the first of which is people want unconventional botanicals so you're not really expecting just the lavenders and the the sweeter botanicals in products but they're also embracing rosemary and sage and thyme as the you know savory notes in botanicals in products why because consumers are embracing lower levels of sugar in their products and they want something that is adventurous and new so there is that aspect that has grown across the board so if you look at our european taste charts we see thyme as an emerging flavor we see rosemary making its way certainly you will still see the orange blossoms and the hibiscuses and and you know the sweeter botanicals in our taste charts that's one piece the second really strong aspect is the spices tahini for instance has grown in north america the sesame paste the nice little savory you know tahini that you would put on dips or you would put on your chicken or have it with hummus and you know your quinoa and such you're now seeing that on brownies and i have to tell you i, I because of these taste charts right you start embracing these unconventional combinations that you want to try it yourself and see what's all the hubbub about and you start to realize that the combinations that are coming is coming not just from consumers and chefs but it's across the board right people like you and me like you mentioned are trying to be more adventurous even within their kitchen to come up with these solutions and flavors so for instance chili crisp on ice creams is one of the recent trends that we've been talking about internally as well right which is the hot honey combinations where you're not just looking at salty and sweet like the salted caramels but you're also looking at spicy and sweet which is your chilies and you see like cayenne pepper and red pepper flakes on your mexican hot chocolate or on your brownies which has like a chipotle twist so we see a lot of that rising as well which is strongly indicative of a consumer who's very thirsty for adventurous twists how can carry help your customers with all of this because you have i guess the research as well as the products to be able to do it but mm-hmm. i guess it must be overwhelming for some companies to really wonder where to go with this so how are you able to help i have to tip my cap to the applications and the chefs and the culinary teams here i fondly refer to them as a willy wonka because they come up with these solutions that are just fascinating and the reality of the matter is yes the taste charts are supposed to be a tool that you can use so for instance we see a lot of customers asking for our taste charts and they post it out in the r&d labs so that you stare at it consistently so you're consumer focused you know it's always consumer first right and making sure that the end consumer who tries it is delighted with the product that comes out and and make sure that loyalty is persistent in the future 
But our customers really post these taste charts across the board in the application rooms and the labs. Our own RDNA folks and our talent internally would look at our taste charts as a toolkit, which is what it is meant to be. It's a toolkit that is grounded in science, but it's the context that our internal carry teams help our customers really bring those flavors alive in applications. And honestly, it's about grounding them that you can't really come up with something that is completely up and coming unless you're thinking about an LTO in a food service location, right? In a restaurant and a really Gen Z, you know, younger consumer focused concept restaurant. But what we do is really looking at our taste charts as a means to bring real life ingredients that are grounded across a mask of consumers. So for instance, our teams internally know how to pick out a couple of mainstream and key flavors, which is the first two buckets that are grounded across product categories. So those flavors and how to mix the right emerging or up and coming flavor to give that, you know, new age twist. So for instance, if you're really thinking about aspects like a mango shake, right? A dairy-based beverage, a mango shake. How do you start including spices like cardamom and spices like sage or, you know, botanicals as such? And how do you make it more appealing to the trend that consumers want this year? So our teams internally are, are probably more than adventurous than the consumer, and they're constantly trying this combinations themselves. So you and me are probably thinking, hmm, I want to start making tahini brownies myself and see what the whole hubbub is about. But I also see our, our DNA teams also inspiring and challenging new concepts and ideas because the goal is to take our taste charts and convert them into real-life products. And there's no one better than our culinary networks and our chefs to be able to make that happen. I see products coming out. I see concepts, ideas being tested with consumers on a daily basis. And it's it's fascinating how we bring a customer's product. So we still need to use the customer's base, right? Make sure that it is applicable to the customer's consumer. Make sure that we are in line with the positioning that our customers want. So say, for instance, you want to increase a focus on sustainability. You have been a product and you want to make sure that your consumers understand that you are a sustainable brand as well. How do we bring in off-origin flavors into their product uh, extensions or new product development? If you are really a taste-forward indulgence, right? You're thinking about our over-the-top indulgence trend completely and you want to be perceived more as a functional product right a functional brand that is also helping with health and overall wellness how do we start pulling in from our toolkit how do we start pulling in specific ingredients to bring that active and halo of functionality to the consumer so we think all the way from new product development all the way to the positioning that the customer wants as well at the end of the game you know what our teams put together with the taste charts is just the beginning of the story it's the teams really who use it that inspire that innovation and that new product development. And of course, there's lots on plant-based. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. I don't know if you've taken a look at our taste charts. Look at our life cycles for plant-based. We have a life cycle on meat alternatives and cheese alternatives as well, because they're on two different timelines of evolution. So in particular, we're seeing ingredients like oat rising, right? Oat has been a, a, a popular alternative in dairy and in cheese and, and so on. 
but we are also starting to see that there is a lot of look the whole world is affected by supply challenges and you know kind of the network of distribution and logistics have been affected because of the coronavirus but we start to see how consumers still have a increasing demand for oat as an alternative that we are now noticing consumers embracing oat as a flavor it has made its way on our taste charts for the first time ever of not oat just as an alternative but oat as a flavor so that consumers when they are drinking like a latte or you're having like a yogurt you don't just get it as a base but you get it as a flavor as well so that has been a very significant new trend this year that has come out of the blue our life cycles are great as a toolkit so if you see those across the cheese alternatives and meat alternatives we actually identify how flavors have made its way even in the alternative as consumers really demand this i want taste i want you know nutrition i want wellness i want everything we term this consumer as the and consumer who really wants this and that and many others so this movement of vegan alternatives or plant based dairy alternatives consumers have had to trade off flavors quite a bit over the past decade now no longer because what we've identified is that there is a significant rise in the number of flavors in the plant based cheese world or the dairy world overall that consumers expect you know if your taste charts have 120 flavors there we expect 120 or at least 100 flavors from our vegan alternatives as well or plant based alternatives as well and that is a very bold statement that consumers are making now that i'm not trading off anything it's just my choice of conventional traditional dairy versus plant based dairy and i don't want to make a trade off i want i expect that the marketplace follows suit with the flavor options that i'm really looking for and demanding so that's a, that that has been one significant change that i wanted to make sure we bring to light and if you look at a conventional like plant based cheese brand right now and you flip the package and you look at the number of ingredients on the label right now there's significantly more than a dairy based cheese slice would right so if you use those in comparison and consumers are flipping over 75% of consumers are turning back and reading the ingredient declaration and the nutritional facts right that's the fact it's been it's been the case for a good couple of years now that consumers are wanting to turn the back and read through and we've realized that on average there are seven more ingredients on a plant based slice of cheese versus a dairy based slice of cheese and consumers are identifying that like we have instances where consumers have in research told us well that's too much i didn't expect so many ingredients in my cheese slice right why is the case and they are asking these questions and it's great they are asking these questions because then folks like us and getting and the industry what what we can do is ensure that we are cleaning up the label and we are putting those ingredients intentionally so our teams are always researching ways of how to simplify the label make it more appealing to the consumer so that they don't have this you know sticker shock that oh my gosh there's just so many ingredients in my label and it does promote this aspect of plant based lifestyles we know that people are embracing a more sustainable lifestyle and quite a bit of these drivers of choice with plant based is not just lifestyle driven not just kind of diet because i have to choose plant based because there's no other alternatives not just that but they are also embracing the idea of like gosh i need to eat more vegetables because or include lesser 
you know, dairy or meats in my diet so that it's good for the planet too. And those are the three drivers of choice when it comes to plant-based. And that's significant. People doing it out of choice. They don't have to, but they're choosing to because they want to embrace more of the pro-sustainability you know, activities in the marketplace. And that's significant change in a consumer. That's why we call them the conscious consumer as well this year. And now it's time for our weekly look at what's happening in the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Um, well, just a quick update from the dairy markets this week. Continue uh, very much on the same theme we've had over the last number of months. Um, there's been some new milk collection numbers out, and they have been, uh, in general, quite disappointing. New Zealand uh, numbers were out last week uh, for December, and the milk collections uh, on a solids basis were down uh, 5.2% versus the previous year. While this was low, it's also significantly lower than we had forecast. We were forecasting a decrease of about 2.9%. So um, yeah, definitely some concerns from that side of the world. And you know, if we look at uh, the weather and actually the pasture growth across New Zealand, it's still concerning. So it looks like it's going to continue to be a challenge for the foreseeable future. When we look over towards the US, we've also got some December numbers out there. Uh, they were marginally lower, down 0.1%, um, but that was roughly in line with expectations. Um, we are uh, increasingly hopeful that there will be some positive numbers coming from the US very sh- soon in terms of milk collections, primarily due to the high margins that are now being um, achieved with the uh, increased milk prices. In EU, we still are struggling. Um, we're starting to see the weekly collection numbers uh, look like they're improving a little bit, but they're still quite negative, down about over 2% for France and Germany, for example, in the latest numbers. Uh, and they're also lapping over reasonably weak numbers last year. So still in Europe, we are having a problem, especially with the major milk producers, where the milk is not yet coming online. We're obviously been witnessing very uh, high and steeply increasing commodity prices, which are starting to filter through to high milk prices now. But it's it's only happening uh, literally in the last month or two, and and the, you know the cost base from a lot of farmers across Europe and around the world has been increasing um, in advance of that with with high fertilizer and feed costs. Um, so still some concerns, and I think in in general we haven't seen a, a turnaround yet in terms of the milk collection. So still not enough product available to to meet the the demand that's out there in the market, and that's it's been a, again a similar theme over the last uh, six plus months, and it's, it's the reason why we've moved up to such significantly high levels for uh, across the dairy markets. I mean, if we look at the quotations in Europe this week, um, they've been released this morning. And we do see some signs of stability in butter, um, where prices have dropped slightly, uh, down 0.6%. But again, we're at very high levels still, above €6,000 per tonne. Um, skim and all of the powders actually have uh, have been increasing again in terms of the quotations this week. Uh, skim of powder is up 1.1%, whey up 2.5%, and whole milk powder up uh, quite a significant 2.4%. So still, you know, in general, uh, prices are high. Um, demand, some question marks over it, but it still seems to be holding up. Um, forward coverage uh, is starting to 
become a challenge for a lot of end users. So you do see the forward prices in the dairy markets um, in backwardation, which means that they're cheaper the further forward we go. But still in the short term, not enough milk supply, um, reasonably low stocks and still reasonably high demand is continues to be the theme. Great. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Have a great week and we'll talk to you in February. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for Podcast 166. 167 is underway. I'm not sure what kind of shape it is in yet, but I do have a couple of interviews already planned. At work, we're having a wellness week, which involves many of us joining teams in the workplace to do walks and count our steps. Of course, here in Scotland, we're due for about 10 days out of the next 15 being rain. So I think I'm going to be letting the team down unless I can figure out a way to go to the fridge about 485 times every day. We now no longer need a COVID test when we return to the UK from a trip overseas. So that's also good, although we still do need them to actually get into other countries in the first place. But hopefully that's light at the end of the tunnel. I think I said the same thing last year, so no more predictions. Okay, I hope wherever in the world you are that you will have a great week, that you enjoyed the podcast, and until next time, stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.